you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's, it's my joy and privilege to be here with you this morning. It's not my first time at this church, but when I used to come, I was usually speaking as an international worker. And in those cases, I got to speak to my first passion, which is the millions in our world who, through no fault of their own, have never heard of Jesus. I'm passionate about unreached peoples. And I sh I'll mention another passion. I'm going to speak about my third passion today. But my second passion is for the millions in our world who, because they are willing to be known as followers of Jesus, suffer intensely today. So I'm passionate about the persecuted church and spent two decades among the suffering church in Eastern Europe and Russia. And it's no coincidence that today is the International Day of Prayer for the persecuted church. And I hope, I'm going to take some time this afternoon, I hope you go to this website and pray for the, inter the persecuted church around the world. Today I'm speaking to my third passion, a passion for the next generation. Those young men and women who will lead this church and the body of Christ in the next decades when people like me and some of you are dead and gone from the scene. What a privilege it is to in my retiring years to speak into the lives of young people and people who work, go faithfully to the marketplace every day, and to see God laying his hand upon them and raising up leaders for his church. I brought with me this morning an old, old book. It's over 100 years old. It was published in 1913. And it's battered and worn. I've read it so many times. It's a story out of China called The Passing of the Dragon about the bloody revolt in 1911 in which the ruling Manchu dynasty in China was overthrown. I'm passionate about this. I was born in China. And the historians call those battles the, the Boxer Rebellion. Chapter 17 tells a story of an English doctor who cared for the wounded Chinese in that terrible battle. And as I read it recently again, it took me back to my childhood, often on a hot summer afternoon in a small town just north of here. My father would take his seven children for, yes, he had seven children, for a walk along an abandoned railway in Three Hills. And as we walked, we often heard stories of his childhood in China, because his father, Dr. George Charter, was my grandfather. He was the English doctor that's written about in this book. My father died 45 years ago, prematurely at the age of 60. And at his funeral, I assure you, no one whispered, how much is he worth? <laughs> because he left very little in terms of money and things and property. But my father died leaving a legacy of spiritual and moral currency that next generations will feel deeply. Often I have sensed that my father is in that, that cheering section that Hebrews chapter 12 speaks about. It speaks about a, a great cloud of witnesses. And the picture is of a, an Olympic arena where weary athletes are cheered on 
by former Olympians. And we who now run in the race are, are cheered on by men and women who devoted their lives to raising up the next generation, mentoring them in the race. And today I want to speak about two of these athletes of faith. The older generation represented by Moses and the younger generation represented by Joshua. They weren't perfect men, but they provide for us a great example of what it means to pass the baton of faith to the person running behind you in the race. The story of Joshua doesn't begin when Moses died. If you read the historical books and um, the books of the, of the Pentateuch, you will see in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges that you can piece together the story of Joshua. And you see that he grew up in Egypt. He was there when the ten plagues came upon the Egyptians. He was there when Moses led the people of Israel out of the country of Egypt. And he probably marched proudly with his father Nun and his grandfather Elishama at the head of the tribe of Ephraim as they carried the bones of grandfather Joseph back to the promised land. He probably witnessed the awesomeness of God at Mount Sinai. I know he did. He must have cringed at the fickleness of the people of Israel, his people, as they groaned and moaned every time something bad happened in the desert. And he probably remembered that day when the great leader, his hero Moses, struck the rock. He was so angry, instead of doing as God had told him to do, God told him to speak to the rock so that water would come. Moses struck the rock in his anger. And yes, water gushed out, but because of his disobedience, God told Moses he would never go into the promised land. And Moses knew that he would die and his leadership might die with him. No, he knew his leadership would not die with him because he had invested in a younger man. He had intentionally invested probably for more than 40 years in uh, the young man Joshua. I love the passage. We don't have time to read it this morning. Read it this afternoon, Numbers 27, where Moses, when he, well, he knew he was going to die, and so he deliberately asks God for a younger man to carry on what he is doing among God's people. God had reminded him by showing him the promised land from a mountaintop, but God reminds him, you're never going to go into the promised land. Somebody else is going to lead my people there. And in Numbers 27, you begin to understand just how important the investment Moses made in Joshua becomes. Because Israel is facing the most critical days of its existence. Because on the other side of the Jordan River, there are idolaters. And Moses must have at times worried about his people. What will happen to my people when these, they move into the promised land and the remaining idolaters, these godless people, are living among them? It's an interesting picture, perhaps, of what the church is up against in, in today's world. You ever think of that as you think about the children you've brought into the world? 
Israel was disorganized and so easily tempted and turned to follow other gods. And I think Moses must have had, at times, agonized before the Father and said, what's going to happen to my people when I'm gone? And I wonder at times if, as you hear the news, you realize with soberness these are pretty scary days to bring children into the world. Unless we are intentionally thinking about leadership for the next generation. In some sense, the church, I heard someone say recently, and I've thought a lot about it, the church is, in a sense, one or two generations, potentially, from uh, extinction, unless there is strong leadership trained up for the next generation. If that sounds really far-fetched, if you look at history, and I'm always reminded of North Africa, which missiologists refer to it today as the land of the vanished church, because on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, if you look there, you'll see that there were Libyans and North Africans among that massive crowd upon whom the Holy Spirit descended. And many became Christians, and they went back to their home countries. And in North Africa, a vibrant church was established. It produced theologians like Cyprian and Tertullian. It produced martyrs. And if you've ever been to Alexandria in Egypt, amazing libraries of theological books. And yet, in the 4th and 5th century, when Arab invaders brought Islam to the region, the church, at first, it vanished without a trace. Very, very few believers left. And even today, the church is small and struggling. And that's why I, I dare to say that potentially, and I know that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But potentially, the church could be a generation or two uh, from extinction unless there is a, a very deliberate commitment to turn around, see who's running in the race behind us, and, and begin to pass the baton to the next generation. My message this morning is not just addressed to the older generation, although that this is a large part our responsibility. But there is not one generation excluded from the challenge I, I want to leave with you this morning. Whether you are 18 or 80, there is someone younger than yourself to whom you can begin to prepare for that handoff of the baton. Yes, I'm speaking as an educator this morning. One of my favorite educators, a, a, a brilliant man by the name of Walter Brueggemann, he has said every generation that wants to exist beyond a single generation must think about education. And he's talking about the education of the soul. It's a special kind of education. I don't like using the word mentoring because for so many people it's intimidating. They say, well, that's for a, a special group of people who are specially prepared. And that's why I use the picture of passing the baton like in a relay race, because if you are a, a believer this morning, you are in the race, and there is someone younger than you running behind you. And so I like to simplify it, demystify it. This is, this is not rocket science. I talk about it as a relationship, and I think all of you have relationships with someone younger than yourself. Let me talk about the relationship, because 
as I, as I look at Moses and Joshua, I see so much that I can learn about what happens in that relationship. Four things that I want to talk about as we talk about the relationship. First of all, we're talking about a relationship that isn't a, a, a calendared event. It only happens once a week. No, it happens in the daily life of people in the church or in your workplace. It's a relationship in the everydayness of life. I love what Eugene Peterson says when he talks about this relationship between the older generation and the younger generation. He says, you know what? It's really like farm work. He says, all the unglamorous chores like cleaning out the barn and mucking out the stalls and pulling weeds, it's farm work. The unglorious conversations and prayers that happen between God's people in the everyday context of life. And so I'm going to tell you a few things that I, I see, especially as I've looked at the life of Moses and Joshua, that help me understand things I can do in this relationship with the younger generation. And the first thing I want to say is that it involves prayer. The very first mention of Joshua is the battle with Amalek. And in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8, Israel is under attack, and the 80-year-old 80 80 year Moses takes the young man Joshua aside and he says, hey Joshua, you go and fight and I'll stay here and pray for you. And Exodus 17 verse 10 says, so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses and Aaron and Hur, they were the older generation, went to the top of the hill. And as long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. And whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Moses, Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Moses built an altar at that place and called it, the Lord is my banner. And here's how he explained it. For hands were lifted to the throne of God. Prayer was a vital part of Israel winning the battle. Can you imagine the impact on a young man when an older man prayed for him while he was down on the battlefield? My own participation in the Christian and Missionary Alliance goes back more than 40 years and many, many people prayed for me, many of you here in this church. Well, I went to some very tough places in the 80s and 90s behind what we then called the Iron Curtain. It wasn't because I was brave. It was because people were praying. Imagine the impact on a younger person who you know. If you were to say to them, for example, as they go into the marketplace tomorrow, hey, buddy, I'm praying for you. What can I pray for? Or if you say to someone, you're off to the university tomorrow, let me pray for you. Tell me what you need. Joshua won the battle that day, not because he had the smarts, but because an older person was investing with him in him by prayer. Let me give you another example of just how ordinary this kind of relationship is. Things that any of you can do. Another thing that the older Moses did for the younger Joshua 
was that he invited him to share in God's presence. He invited him into the most intimate moments of his life with God. Look at Exodus 24, if you have the time. Moses is going up Mount Sinai to get the law. And it says at first he took 70 men with him. And then as he saw a vision of God's glory ahead, he left some of them and he took only the young man Joshua with him. And for six days, scripture tells us, they entered into the most glorious experience of God's presence. And Joshua, the young man, was never the same again. And it causes me to wonder if the younger generation in our churches ever gets a chance to, ever gets invited into the presence of God with you. Maybe to join in your quiet time alone with the Lord. Or, as I often say to young people, you want to learn how to pray? Every time there's an opportunity for prayer in your church, I hope you're there. Learning how to pray from someone who's a little further ahead of you in the journey. And so it involves entering into God's presence with the person who is your, your partner as you move through the race. Let me mention another very ordinary thing. It happens perhaps every day, certainly weekly in the church. Let me mention serving, because Moses modeled for Joshua what it meant to serve the body of Christ, the people of God. Can you imagine the impact when Joshua was invited to go with Moses into the most holy place? That's pretty awesome. And the story of Joshua is filled with accounts of how he walked alongside Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, again around those verses 7 to 11, when Moses would leave the camp and he would go with Joshua to the tabernacle and they would see hanging over the tabernacle that cloud that indicated that the presence of God was there. And Moses took Joshua right into the tabernacle to serve with him. And verse 11 says, the Lord would speak face to face with Moses as a man speaks with his friend. And then Moses would return to the camp. And he left the young aide Joshua in the tabernacle in the presence of God. And it's such a moving picture for me how Moses goes with, takes this young man, but the young man Joshua is so overwhelmed by the reality of what it means to serve in God's presence that even when his mentor leaves, he says, He's talking to the Lord, and he's saying, you're so wonderful. I, I don't ever want to leave this place. Just let me stay and be with you. Moses exposed Joshua to ministry, and as a result, he found his, his niche in life. Something for us who are a little further in the journey to think about. And a fourth example of just how, how down-to-earth I, I see this relationship between the older and the younger is the issue of the matter of affirming and publicly empowering an old, be a younger man or woman. As I read in Numbers chapter 27, even though at this time Moses, he still has many years before him in service, he deliberately asks God to show him for someone in the younger generation who will be able to carry on what he has been doing. Begins, it's, it's very exciting to me that this begins with the prayer of an older man. 
And in Exodus chapter, uh, Numbers chapter 27, verse 18, God tells Moses, he says, take Joshua. This is after Moses has prayed. Who, who am I supposed to invest my life in for leadership? And God says to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand upon him. Give him some of your authority. Wow, that's hard for the older generation to do, isn't it? So that the whole Israelite community will obey him. And Moses did as the Lord commanded. He took Joshua and he had him stand before the Eliezer, the priest, and he stood in front of the whole assembly. And then Moses laid his hand on him and commissioned him as the Lord had instructed him. It's very significant that Moses looks around for a younger person who's already giving evidence of being anointed by the Holy Spirit. Moses recognizes in Joshua a spiritual gift. And by the time Moses dies, Scripture tells us that Joshua was a young man filled with the spirit of wisdom. Why? The Scripture says because Moses laid his hands on him. I don't understand it, but that legacy was passed along by the laying on of hands. And I wonder why we don't do that more in our churches. When we see a young person serving effectively, we need to affirm them. I wanted to affirm this worship team this morning. What an amazing time of worship they led for us. I call this the legacy of affirmation. It means that there is someone running in the race behind you who discovers God's purpose for their life, and I help them discover what their potential is. Can you imagine the impact it would, it would have on the next generation if we did more of that in the church? Almost 40 years ago, <laughs> I was a young school teacher, a French teacher, don't hold that against me, in the um, city of Calgary, and I attended Foothills Alliance Church. I had gone there when I went to university, and I, I fell in love with that church. I loved that church. I was so involved. I was there every time the door was opened, and I will never forget, after about 10 years, one morning at the end of church, several of the elders of that church gathered around me in the foyers. They said, can we talk to you for a few minutes? My heart was pounding. I wondered, what have I done that the elders want to talk to me? And the first question out of one of the elders' mouth was, what are you going to do with your life? You've been here 10 years. We've watched you. You have gifts for ministry. We think you should prepare to serve the church. And I will never forget going out to the parking lot. They had told me, if this means going away to seminary, we'll help you go financially. And they did. And I'll never forget standing in the parking lot that morning, opening my car door, and my heart was exploding. I was just 28 years of age. I had a successful career, and I thought I would explode. I thought to myself, they think I have gifts for ministry. Nobody's ever told me that before. They think I should go into ministry. And that experience of affirmation launched me into a 40-year career with the Christian Missionary Alliance. I see that in the Old Testament. I see it in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul told the young man Timothy, he said, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
The legacy of affirmation is an empowering legacy that you can give to anyone who is behind you in the race. They may not even be younger than you necessarily chronologically, but perhaps spiritually they are younger than you. And you can help them discover their potential. I suspect I'm talking to young men and women who long for this type of relationship today. And so few of the younger generation ever hear those affirming words. Um, like I say, we have allowed these kinds of things to be delegated to professionals like spiritual directors and trained mentors. But I think it is the work of the church. It's the work of the, of the it's the pr part of our being priests, the priesthood of believers. And so my words this morning are not just directed to my generation, but to all who are in the race as believers. So it happens in the everydayness of life. Three other things I want to briefly mention about this relationship to give you some help in thinking through who you might pray about investing your life into. I want to say, second, that it is an intentional relationship. I often say to young people today that this kind of relationship won't just happen. You have to be intentional about it. You have to go after it. And I love the fact, I've already said it, that the older man, Moses, began with intentionality. He went to God. He said, so who am I to invest my life in? Who is there younger than me that can carry on the tasks after I die? And I, I just get so excited when I think about the relationship between Moses and Joshua because Moses took concrete steps in order to hand the baton to this younger man. Let me say a word to the younger generation. I know you are, many of you are looking for a mentor. You're craving this kind of input from someone older than you. And I encourage you to begin to pray and seek God's help in finding someone who will stand with you as a, as a spiritual friend. But in the meanwhile, if you bemoan the lack of a, a, a spiritual friend in your life, I encourage you to be one. Think about someone else younger than you into whom you can invest your life. So take the initiative. It's an intentional relationship. The third thing is it, it is a reciprocal relationship. It's a two-way street. I think that Moses, who lived to be 120 years of age, he was kept young by all the young men that, that surrounded him all the time. He always seemed to have younger people working with him. And it's a, a powerful story if you trace the story of Moses and Joshua through the Old Testament in those early books as um, the, an older man loved and invested and trusted. He invested in Joshua. And the younger man, Joshua, admired and, and loved Moses. But I suspect that there it went both directions as they worked through the daily routines of life. It's a, it's a two-way street. When I mentor someone, one of the first things I say to them is, I need you in my life as well. I need you to pray for me and speak into my life. And so the question I have for those of you who are in my generation or 
just and I'm certainly older than 50, but the, the above 50 age bracket, I, I urge you to begin to ask God, who can I invest my life in? Some of you are already doing it. And to the younger generation, perhaps your prayers will begin with, who can I receive from? And you may have to go after it. You may have to ask someone to speak into your life. It's a reciprocal relationship. During the years that I was an international worker in Russia and Eastern Europe, many times pastors would ask me. They knew a little of my story. They knew that I was one of seven children and that, amazingly, all seven, all seven of my father's children took that baton from, the, from my father's hand, if you like, and began to run in the race faithfully. And they used to say, what did your father do in passing faith to the next generation that made it, the passing of the baton so effective that not one of those children dropped it? And I used to say, I don't know. I'm really not sure. And I've thought about it a lot. And this morning, I think I have the answer. And I'm going to give you the fourth way of describing this relationship. I call it, it is autobiographical. <laughs> That's a big, uncomfortable, imposing word. But it just means, I think my father's passing of the baton was so effective because he told us his story. That, I think, was the key. Because although my father's been gone now for 45 years, I don't remember his face. I hardly remember, I can't remember his mannerisms. But I remember his stories. And more importantly than his stories, I remember with such clarity the father, the God of my father, who was revealed in those stories. And the finest investment that you can make in your children and your grandchildren and in the younger generation here in this church is to tell them their, their, your story. We in the church have given up our love for stories, and we've been, they've been substituted by a love for ideas. And we need to relearn how to tell stories. As the story of Joshua, the leader, fades from the biblical story, there's a very sobering conclusion. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, there's a very sad commentary on the generation that followed Joshua's. In Judges chapter 2, verse 10, it says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. Joshua led them into the, into the promised land. He didn't give them a 10-year plan. He told them the stories of God's faithfulness. Moses had told the story. Joshua told the story. But somehow the generation that followed Joshua failed to tell the story. And the people of Israel never grasped that personal knowledge of God because of the lack of stories. I don't have time to tell you all about telling your story. I have a seminar I often do with churches about how to tell your story. But let me just tell you, to give you some, something to start ruminating, thinking about. When you tell your stories, three fundamental questions are asked and answered. Number one, the question is, who is God? 
And I know that as I heard my father's stories and as his children heard the story, very clearly we began to understand that my father's God was a faithful God. He was a loving God. He was a forgiving God. And that leads me to the second question. I came to understand the question, who am I? Because my father didn't spare us the details of how, what a naughty little boy he was. No, he often told us about when he would be punished for, for wrongdoing. And I'm sure that in Moses and Joshua's lives, I'm sure Moses told him clearly why he wasn't going into the promised land. In other words, the younger generation begins to understand that it is not because of our goodness, not because of our faithfulness that God chooses us. He chooses us because he loves us. And that's what helped me to understand myself. It answers the question, who am I? And the last thing that when you tell your story, the next generation begins to understand the purpose question. What am I supposed to do with my life? I talk to an, a generation today that really is floundering to know the answer to that purpose question. And I think that as we share our stories with the person behind us in the race, they come to put together the pieces of that purpose question. I have a dear friend in Calgary. His name is Jake Hebert. He's a retired school principal who lives in Calgary still. And every time I see him, he puts up his hand in the air and he expects a high five from me. And to most people, Jake's greeting is a typical, friendly high five. But to me, it is much, much more. When Jake gives me the high five, he's still saying to me, Miriam, I handed it off to you. Because Jake was among that group of elders who stopped a young French teacher in the lobby of the church and said, you have gifts for ministry that you need to develop. You need to prepare to serve God, Miriam. And that day, Jake passed the baton to me. He passed the legacy of affirmation. And down through the years, I have benefited from so many in the church who have affirmed me with their insight and, and affirmation. And I'm here this morning to urge you as older men and women, you're all older than someone, to speak into the lives of those who follow behind you. I myself want to say to the next generation, I hand it off to you. And I pray that that will be your prayer as well. And as I close now, there is a verse in the Psalms that I want to pray over you as, as I close. It's a, a, a prayer prayed by the psalmist. And I'd like to believe that every one of us will pray it this morning. And here's the verse from Psalm 71, verse 8. Even when I, I am old and gray, do not forsake me, O God, till I declare your power to the next generation and your might to all who are to come. Thank you. May that be, the, the, be fulfilled in this church, Eritrea Alliance. God bless you.